welcome to No More Shame, the podcast dedicated to breaking the shame narrative and healing the wounds of shame that hold us back. In each episode, Dr. Megan Clunan will be exploring the tools of psychology and the truths of Christian theology to help you live free from shame and in the reality of your true identity. So let's dive into today's episode. All right, friends, welcome back to the No More Shame podcast. This week, we're going to continue forward with unpacking a few of shame's one-liners in our lives. In the past two podcasts, we've addressed a couple. Uh, The first one we talked about was the one of, hey, be sure you don't waste your life. And then the second one we talked about just last week was you can't tell anyone what you're dealing with. And so if you've not listened to those, please check those out when you get a chance. For this week, we're going to be addressing the one-liner of you're never going to change. This is a lie, but it is a hard one to break free from. It's one that defeats us, it limits us, it stops us, and it hinders us from living in the new, from creating the new, which is exactly what the enemy of our souls, our minds, and our bodies wants to accomplish. If this can be believed, if it's true that I'll never change, then I'm going to stop trying, stop dreaming, stop hoping, and essentially stop living. I'll survive, and I'll be alive, don't get me wrong, but I won't be living out what I've been created to live, and I'll know it. And it defeats us. It drains us. It causes us to settle for less. This one-liner, though, it's not from Jesus. It's not based in the truth, and it can't hold us for any longer than we choose to allow it to have power. And for those of us who struggle with it, I know that doesn't really seem rational, right? It's, it's hard to fathom that perhaps this is our choice, Because perhaps we've tried and we've tried and we've tried to change and we're just not seeing it happen. But I'm going to challenge you guys. It is our choice. The choice, though, isn't change to change. The choice is surrender. That's what creates change. But surrender to who? Surrender to what? Let's talk about that. So as we look in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see this choice is on the table in front of people regularly. This is nothing new to humanity. We have the choice to say, if I want to live new, if I want to live in the new, well, there has got to be one that defines what that new looks like. But I always have the choice not to do that. Joshua 24, 14 to 16 says this. This is after the Israelites had come out of slavery. They've come out of the desert. They've traveled for 40 years and and not made it to the promised land and they're about to get into that space and place and Joshua is laying all of Israel's history before them and reminding them all that God has done and then the question is posed now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth put away the other things that you have followed put away the other gods that you have feared and then 24 verse 15 says this but if if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served, which are beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And then chapter 24, verse 16, the people answered and said, far be it from us that we would abandon the Lord to serve other gods. And they go on for there, from there to talk about this is why. This is why we are going to serve this Lord. But it is a decision. It is a choice to serve Yahweh, the one true God that was laid before them. And then John 6, 66 to 68. This is something where Jesus is talking to Peter. And he's talking to them after he's given some pretty harsh comments to people about what it means to follow him. So John 6, 66 to 68 um, goes on like this. As a result of this, many of his disciples left, 
through these hard statements. Like this is a hard thing to do. This is a hard belief to accept. And they would no longer walk with him, with Jesus. Some of the disciples left, some of the people that were following him. So Jesus then turned and he said to the 12 disciples, you do not want to leave also, do you? He's asking though, because it is a choice. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter, in that moment, that's his confession of faith in that moment of saying, I, I hear you, but there is nowhere else to go. There's no other God that I want to serve. But the choice was there. And then over, even further back in um, New Testament, you look in Hebrews, Hebrews 11. You guys might be familiar with that. It's called the, the faith chapter um, because it gives a basically rundown of all the great giants of our faith. But in Hebrews 11, after listing off some of these individuals and before listing some more, there's a little section that I think, I think sometimes we miss. And it, it's verses 15 and 16. Hebrews 11 verses 15 and 16 say this, and indeed, if they, these people that had this great faith, where they literally pleased God with the amount of faith that they had, it says this though, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country, which they left the familiar into the unknown, right? Which is sometimes what change feels like. They would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And it goes on from there and again lists some of the great acts of faith that are part of the Judeo-Christian tradition and understanding. Um, And I bring this up to say, if they had remembered or wanted to go back to where they were, they had the opportunity. It just told us that in Hebrews. Peter's being asked by Jesus, you don't want to leave too, do you? Which means you have this thought, you have this choice, you have this cognitive ability to decide you may want to go back. And then as well, Joshua to the Israelites, choose today who you're going to serve. But notice in any one of those, the choice wasn't to change. The choice wasn't to be new. The choice wasn't to um, be better. The choice was to surrender. The Israelites were like, no, we will serve God. We will surrender to Yahweh. Peter was like, no, you have the words of eternal life. You are the one that I will follow. The people of faith in Hebrews 11, they chose not to believe that something else was better than what God had prepared for them, even if they had never seen it come to pass. And for many of them never got to see it come to pass. But we're here today because of the choices that they made to say, you know what? I'm going to believe in and surrender to the God that says there's something better ahead. This is surrender. Surrender creates change, not wanting to change. That's not enough. There are reasons that we believe this one-liner, though. Let's talk about that for a second. We're not just crazy and we aren't just giving up when we believe, yeah, I'm never going to change. That's not what's happening here. There are three main reasons we believe this and three ways to refute that line of thought. One, it's because life is hard. Life has taught us that we're weak because we are weak. We're limited. It's understandable. Life has taught us that uh, we can't will into existence full personal change into health on all levels. Life has taught us that we only have so much to give and we cannot, in essence, save ourselves. But guys, this is a good thing. It sounds counterintuitive for me to say it's a good thing, but it's good that we're aware that we can't save ourselves. In person-centered theory, um, there's this concept essentially that you have everything in you in order to heal you. 
you got a lot in you to heal you, but you don't have everything, okay? <laughs> um, the whole premise behind it is you basically, you know, need to learn that you can pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I was at a conference just this past weekend on multiculturalism and multi-ethnic uh, relationships and how to restore and reconcile and redeem those in our world and the worlds that we work, be it ministry or education or so forth. And one of the statements that someone made is, yeah, it's great to consider the fact that someone could pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, but what if that person never had any boots? Or what if they had boots, but their boots broke? Their bootstraps broke, right? What's at the end of that? The gift of the one who has reached the end of themselves is to have the chance to learn that the end of you isn't the end. Not when Jesus is involved, because when those bootstraps break or when you realize you were never even wearing them, there's a God that has made you, that is for you, that sees you, that loves you, and you don't actually have to save yourself because he came to do that. He came for you. So that's one of the things. It's because life is hard that we believe you're never going to change. Another thing is that we, we believe it because we're afraid. We're on guard because we're now approaching the unknown. The change that we long for is change that we probably have never experienced. And so because of that, it is unfamiliar. It's unknown. And as harsh as this might sound, we believe this one-liner because we've placed our fear in the wrong Savior, be it ourselves be it others' opinions, be it what culture declares as our value, whatever. Whatever we fear is basically our master, friends. So if we take this line of thought, then we have, we've become a slave to something other than God and discovered its destruction. And as ridiculous as this may sound, the temptation to return to that enslaver that we actually do not even want, it's always there because it's familiar. The temptation to return is not because you would like to do so, but because the view into the unknown looks dauntingly unfamiliar. Our minds and our bodies are made to desire homeostasis. We're made to want balance. Balance is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. The problem with that desire is as with all things, because we do not live in a perfect world, but a fallen world, everything good has the capacity to be distorted. And our human desire, our our mind and our body and our soul longing for balance has been distorted to say this balance that has been established and has been created, this familiarity, it feels safer even though it's more harmful than stepping into the new because it feels more familiar. We're going to talk about emotions in a minute. We don't We don't want to step into the unknown because to do that feels like we're throwing that caution, that balance to the wind and our minds and our bodies are not comfortable in this. Even if there is something in us that longs for that different kind of living. After escaping with Moses and Aaron from Egypt um, in Exodus, the Israelites actually showed us this human reality. Okay. So in Exodus 14, you can read Exodus 14, 10 through 12. It says this. And when Pharaoh drew near the children of Israel, this is right after the escape, right? Right after they've seen all the plagues come and go and, and God has protected them and he's guiding them. And, um, and anyway, so Pharaoh, they draw near, they're being pursued. The children of Israel lifts their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. Okay, of course, this would be a very frightening sight. So they were afraid and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They, they then said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? And why have you dealt with us like this to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not 
the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, which if you read chapters previously, that's not at all what they said, but you know, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die in the wilderness. And it goes on Exodus 16, two through three. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, oh, that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. That's later on. They then escape the Egyptians and then they're out there wondering and then they're hungry And in their hunger, instead of turning to the Lord, instead of recognizing all that he has done and all the miracles that he has done to get them to where they are in life right now, they're like, oh my gosh, we're totally going to die in the wilderness. Okay. Notice the reasons they lovingly looked back at slavery. That's what they're doing in this moment, though. The reasons were fear-based because they did not know how or if God would truly care for them in the unknown. Fear is crouching at your door too, my friends. When traveling in faith into new territory, fear often says things like, you've never succeeded here before. What makes you think that you're going to this time? Or you've never dealt with something like this before. What makes you think you can do so now? But please hear me tell you this. Never before is a beautiful place to be. We serve a God of never before. Other examples in scripture, never before did a Jewish woman have the power to alter an entire kingdom and rescue a whole people group until Esther. Read the entire book of Esther, okay? Never before did a stuttering, identity-confused murderer have the hopes of persuading the most powerful ruler of the known world to let his mass of enslaved people go until Moses. That's Exodus 4. Through 12. Never before did a prostitute have the chance to change the course of history and become revered rather than revolting until Rahab. You read that in Joshua. Never before did God enter human form to show humanity how much he loves and longs to be with us, to make a way to him without hindrance or necessary performance until Jesus, all through the Gospels. Never before did an impulsive fisherman turn disciple, walk on water, or see the Holy Spirit fill humanity until Peter. Never before did a Pharisee of Pharisees walk away from his well-earned legalistic faith to follow a savior he once persecuted to the point of murdering his followers until Paul. And never before did the image of a cross elicit hope rather than despair or peace, rather than shame, until Jesus. Colossians 2, 14 to 15 says it so beautifully. And the list could go on and on and on. And so this never before language, this unknown language, it's because we're afraid that, yes, we believe you're never going to change. But again, never before is a wonderful place to be when we turn it back over to God. The third reason we fall to pr- we fall prey to the lie that will never change is because of pride. And I, I know, right, this... This sounds counterintuitive as well. You're like, really? Because I kind of like hate on myself when I'm in this place of I'm never going to change. I know. I hear you. I've been there. But this isn't just a broken form of self-understanding, guys. It really is an issue of pride as well. And I know. I I get it. It sounds very opposite to what we think when we think pride. Usually when we think pride, we think of somebody who's very much into themselves, very much aware, or at least wanting you to be aware, right, um, of their greatness. But pride doesn't always look like the overinflated self-celebrating person. 
It can also look like I'm never going to change. I don't know, you know, like who I am. I don't know how to handle the situation or certain things, or I don't know what to do with my days and how to do it, but you know, whatever, I'm not going to change. This is just the way that I am. Guys, this kind of mentality is inflexible. It's unteachable and it's very much stuck. Not unlike the into themselves type of person. There's, it's stuck in the belief that my understanding, if I'm believing like this, if I'm thinking like this, it's stuck in the belief that my understanding of myself is actually the most accurate view. Above all others, above people that might be more mature in their perspective than I am, and above God. Because God doesn't say that about me. And people that understand that perspective, they don't say that either. But if I'm saying, no, 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 this feels really real. No, 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 this is true. No, 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 I'm right. You're not right. God, you're not right. Other people who have this healthier perspective, you're not right. This is pride. This is a defense mechanism. Pride is a defense mechanism, by the way. It's pathological because we think it's going to create health and movement and growth and so on and protection. And it actually does the complete opposite. It stunts us. It hinders us. It halts us. It limits us even more so. That's what pride does. Dr. Eric Johnson in his book, God and Soul Care, defines this kind of thing like this. It's the the kind of thought, he says, that can motivate us to resist conscious awareness of our deficits, our transgressions, and so on, contributing universally to self-justification, self-serving bias, and the defenses, which basically means when we think along these lines of pride, even in this way, it is really just a self-serving defense mechanism that we simply employ because we don't want to feel the sting of struggle or potential failure. But I would say again, I mean, that's just us being afraid of surrender. It's us being afraid that we can't control how things need to go. We can't predict how they need to go. To live like this is a very immature way to live emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. To live like this is to go more on our feelings than on the truth. And that's kind of an adolescent brain. And when I say adolescent brain, I really do mean that. Um, their, their limbic system, which is their emotional regulatory system, it's way more developed than their prefrontal cortex, which is really like the front part of your brain right behind your forehead. That prefrontal cortex is some of the last bits to develop in our brain. It's, and it's the part of our brain that allows us to reason and rationalize and, and pull from past experiences to make decisions about today and, and make decisions today that we think, okay, if I do this today, it'll, it'll impact my future in this way and so on and so forth. And so the, the adolescent brain, that's not quite done yet for them, but their emotional system is very much done, okay? And that's why teenagers can come across as very emotional and not very thoughtful. It's not because they're horrible, egocentristic people. It's because they're still developing. But when we fall into this, we're falling back into that immature adolescent brain, the idea that my feelings matter more than the truth. Feelings matter. Don't get me wrong. They've been given to us by God. I'm not anti-feeling, right? Actually, often I often tell my students, um, feelings are flags, not fact, though. Right? They're things that God has given us to make us aware, aware of something we need to maybe be safe in, aware to um, engage with somebody. When I'm, I'm feeling, you know, you feel the room and you realize, oh, snap, I, I need to be sure to say something like this or, man, someone is hurting and I see that and I feel that and, and I want to be in that with them and let them know I empathize with them. Like feelings are a good thing, um, but they are not the only thing. And in a world that says, do what you feel, if it doesn't feel right, don't do it. We're not really well trained to know what to do when we feel something really strong, but truth might be telling us something different. 
our go-to tendency, our go-to instinct will be to be the emotional creature only. But we have been created with the ability to be thoughtful, to be decisive, to not let our emotions control us. But when we do that, you know, of course, we're living in the more immature space. There are times when we need to, to let our feelings know. I appreciate the fact that you waved the flag of discomfort here, but you're simply informing me of a new way I'm living. You're not my dictator and you're not the one that tells me what I should or should not do. The one that gets to inform me of who I am now is the one that declares me as loved, worth pursuing, defined with intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. What is he saying? What is Jesus saying? He's the one that says all things are possible and his voice is the only one that matters. And so even though I don't feel like this change is possible, I don't feel like anything is happening. I don't feel like any difference has taken place from one day to the next. I'm not running on my feelings. I'm running on what Jesus is telling me. This is a conscious choice, so we have to choose to listen to his voice. And I'm going to say this too. I get this conversation with people often. Like, I, I don't hear God's voice, or I want to hear his voice, or I don't know what he's saying, or what's his will, and blah, 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 blah. My question back to that individual every single time is, well, how much time are you spending with him? This is a relationship. You want to hear his voice? you got to spend time with him. To hear his voice, my friends, means we spend time with him regularly. We read the Bible. We pray. We go to the local church. We're not going to hear from him if we don't know him. And like any relationship, you're not going to know him if you don't spend time with him and his family. We need to spend time with him. To wrap up this point, Mark 9, actually, let's uh, open that up briefly. Mark 9, 20 to 27 says this. This is when um, basically there's a a young man who has a demon. Um, He's he's the son of a man. And he has a demon in him and the disciples tried to cast him out and they couldn't do it. And so the dad of the son comes to Jesus and he's like, hey, man, if you can do this, like I need you to do this. Can you please do this? Let me read this story. And they brought the boy to him, to Jesus. When he saw him, meaning when the boy saw Jesus, okay, the spirit immediately threw him into convulsions and falling to the ground. He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked the father, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the dad said, from childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. But Jesus said to him, which is one of my favorite moments. This is really kind of a sassy moment from Jesus, honestly. (laughs) He has a few of those. Um, It's great. Uh, Jesus said to him, if you can, it's like the dad's like, hey, man, if you can help us. And Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, do you know? Do you know who you're asking if I can? In he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do, but help me in my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And you can read the story from there because that's exactly what happens. If you can, notice that moment. Jesus wasn't put off by the man's unbelief, okay? He wasn't, he wasn't like, oh, 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 you don't feel like you can fully trust me right now, therefore I'm not going to come through for you. That's not the kind of faith that Jesus needs from you. He just wants you to ask. He wants to be involved. He wants you to be the one that says, hey, I know I can't save myself, but I also know that I still really struggle with believing things could be better. 
And I've prayed that prayer in my own life. God, if you can, if you can make this different, if you could grow me here, if you could redeem this there, if you could reconcile this, because I have tried and I cannot. We need to get that honest with him. But to do that means we've got to spend time with him and then listen Put it before him and let him be in relationship with us. We do have that choice to step into that space. He has extended it. His grace is there. He has made the way. We can't do that on our own, but we do need to step into it. So just to wrap this up as well. So when shame comes calling with the one-liner, you're never going to change. Remember, it's a lie, guys. It's a lie. Replace it with the truth. Change will take time. And we've talked about that in the past, how change takes time time. But you have a savior that's not going to leave you. And although your feelings are important, they are not of utmost importance. Rather, it's choosing to trust the one that made you, that is re-informing you this new way of living of the freedom that you were made for. It's not that you're never going to change. It's that you're used to a different way of living, but you're being called into the new. Take the new one day at a time. Give yourself grace when it's not done perfectly. Spend time with Jesus. Let him remind you of who he is and who you are. And be honest when you're like, I don't feel it right now. Tell him he's not put off by that. He's not afraid of your unbelief. He wants to be with you. The longing for and pain of change is not proof that you can't change. It's just a reminder that you can't do it alone. Thank you for joining us this week. Our prayer is that through this week's topic, you have been encouraged in the truth and discovered tools for further freedom in your true identity, one created for and loved by God, one where shame has no say. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the No More Shame podcast so you don't miss next week's topic. You can also follow us on Instagram at no more shame underscore podcast for encouragement and reminders throughout the week. Join us every Monday for new episodes that will empower and equip you to live in the freedom of your true identity.